Hello, and welcome to the Global Futures Podcast. My name is Joel Sandu, and in this episode, we travel to Paris, where my colleague Porsen Benner speaks with Thomas Goma, director of the Institut Français de Relations Internationales, or IFRI, to discuss President Macron's foreign policy agenda in Europe, the United States, and globally. He's young, he's bold, and he's ambitious. France's President Emmanuel Macron, elected in May 2017, is considered by many a visionary leader with big plans for his own country and for Europe. He launched a political movement that became a new political party in France, La République en Marche, and he started several reforms in French domestic policy. His foreign policy is ambitious, with several initiatives to reform European Union and the intention to reaffirm France's position in a globalized world. President Macron is the first foreign leader to be invited for a state visit to the United States under the Trump administration, underlying the importance of the transatlantic partnership. Together with President Trump, he discussed the situation in Syria, where France and the U.S. recently conducted military strikes against Syrian President Assad's chemical weapons arsenal. Committed to upholding multilateralism, President Macron also tried to convince President Trump of the importance of the nuclear deal with Iran, the Paris Climate Agreement, and the value of free trade. At the same time, President Macron multiplies relations with other major rising powers, such as China and India. A priority of his foreign policy, however, is the European Union, including the Franco-German cooperation. President Macron stresses the need of the EU to become strategically autonomous in terms of security and defense policy, and he has formulated many ideas on how to achieve this goal. How President Macron's foreign policy agenda looks like in detail, what priorities and interests he pursues, and what challenges France will face, we will find out now. Our guest today is Thomas Goma, director of IFRI, the principal institution for independent research and debate in France that is dedicated to the analysis of international affairs. Before taking over the executive position, Thomas was the vice president for strategic development and director of IFRI's Russia Center. It's a great pleasure to have you with us on this podcast, Thomas. And uh, it's a good time to be uh, talking about French foreign policy because uh, right now we have the big state visit uh, of President Macron in in Washington. And there's an interesting contrast. Yesterday, uh, there was a big fanfare, a state dinner given to President Macron. And if you compare it to 15 years ago, when uh, France had a big falling out uh, with the US under Chirac uh, and uh, the talk was all about renaming French fries uh, into freedom fries. This is a very different atmosphere between a conservative president uh, in the US and a French president. So what I'd like to get a sense from you, what is different uh, about Mr. M- uh, Mr. Macron from uh, President Chirac's foreign policy vision at the time and the falling out uh, over Iraq uh, that makes this uh, such a more cooperative uh, relationship, at least uh, superficially? First of all, good afternoon, Torsten. Very pleased to, to welcome you at E3. To respond to your questions, I think we we should be back to 2003, obviously, by remaining the joint position at that time uh, between uh, uh, Russia, Germany and France. 
And in fact, the uh, opposition to, to go to, to war um, in Iraq uh, was a, a shared one. And uh, what, what, what is a big difference right now, it is the fact that to some extent we have observed some evolution in the relations between these three actors, Russia, Germany and, and France, and I will be back on that. Second point, there was this opposition, this diplomatic uh, clash in a sense, you know, in 2003, but uh, it didn't produce anything on the field. I mean, there, were, there was a sort of diplomatic uh, attitude, but the ability to change uh, the course of, uh, of events was in fact very limited, to say the, the, the least. And uh, for France, uh, if you remind you know, the atmosphere, what was decided at the highest level by Chirac and his team uh, three or four months after the uh, the speech uh, at the uh, United Nations Security Council, it was in try to to repair the relations with uh, with Washington. And certainly, it is a consistent approach for the end of uh, Chirac's term, Sarkozy's one, and also Hollande one. My point is to underline the fact that since 2003, in fact, the interaction between Paris and Washington has been uh, very, very substantive. And uh, you had also the decision taken by Nicolas Sarkozy. Proper wording is not a comeback to NATO in 2009, but mm. certainly it has gone in, in this direction as well. And now we are in a situation in which, in fact, in terms of uh, level of intelligence, level of uh, military cooperation, which is certainly the highest uh, we had since um, many, many decades. So to, to respond to your, to your question, that's fascinating to observe this diplomatic opposition, which did not produce something uh, in the field, once again, and the uh, Paris attitude to try to restore as soon as possible its relationship with, with, with Washington. And simultaneously, during this period of time, the relation with, uh, with uh, Russia has become more and more difficult because uh, there was, you know, Georgia, there was after that uh, Libya, there was obviously the annexation of Crimea, destabilization of Donbass, and also the evolution of uh, Putin's regime. And the relation with Germany is also uh, something very uh, complicated because uh, if you try to sum up the driving forces of uh, French foreign policy, I think it's fair to say there is, first of all, the P3, this very particular relation between uh, Washington, London uh, and Paris. And the last example is, for instance, the strikes made last week in Syria. But the second driving force is certainly uh, the special relationship with Germany, which is at the core of the European project. So there are some uh, crossing between these two lines, but it's uh, historically two distinct uh, lines. That leads me to the, the third driving force, which is uh, uh, the um, importance given to multilateralism and the United Nations Security Council by France. And it's a way for me to respond to your question with uh, uh, Emmanuel Macron. His main problem right now it is to, to have said in some official documents as such as the strategic review that the multilateralism is weakening by the behavior of Russia, China and also the US. And to go to the US to pretend to defend multilateralism and to be uh, to do so with a president, a US president, which is one of the most unilateralist we had. The leader of the French Conservative Opposition Party uh, today argued uh, that this strategy that you've outlined doesn't have that many uh, things to show for, that many successes. He said that uh, France doesn't have much weight in Brussels, it doesn't have much weight in, in D.C., it doesn't have uh, much weight in Berlin. And uh, that's why he argues that it was wrong to distance, to take a greater distance uh, from, from Russia. How much uh, weight does a position or criticism like 
that have uh, within the French uh, foreign policy debate? Well, there is. Um, if you if you are back to the um, election campaign last year, as you know, all the topics related to foreign affairs are very very limited in terms of importance. You know, in the in the in the debate, except two, which were first Syria, the attitude towards the mm. uh, Syrian regime, and second, the attitude towards Russia. And in fact, if you observe the position taken by the four main candidates, Emmanuel Macron, uh, Marine Le Pen, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, and François Fillon, three of them, the, the last three ones, had some, I would say, um, positions to try to address, to engage uh, Russia um, much more deeper. And in fact, we're receiving in different ways, but uh, we're keen to the, the, the Russian um, uh, arguments. For Emmanuel Macron, that's very different because um, he does consider to be um, that the electoral process was uh, there was some uh, Russian ingerence, you know, during our electoral process, especially for him. It was, it, it was not at all, to say the least, uh, the Kremlin's uh, candidate. And in fact, he decided uh, a few weeks after uh, having been elected to receive uh, in Versailles uh, Vladimir Vladimirovich uh, Putin in May, in last May. Uh, and there was this idea that Russia is very important. There is no European security without Russia. It should be engaged, even if it's difficult. Now the situation is a bit different. Uh, nine months after. First of all, the level of uh, concern, the level of, of uh, threats in the official documents is higher than it was in, uh, in last May for different things. There, there are simultaneously some uh, attempts to establish uh, some links between the uh, civilian society of both countries with the so-called uh, Trianon uh, dialogue. But you have this feeling, you know, in Paris that uh, Russia is much more assertive. Russia doesn't want, in fact, to broaden the discussion, you know, for CIA. And uh, the, ten the tension is, um, is certainly higher after the Scripple affair, after the uh, the events in Syria between uh, Moscow and Paris, than uh, than it was when uh, President Macron was um, was elected. But you are right to say that this position is um, is a tricky one in our domestic debate because there are some political forces which do consider uh, highly important to to have a sort. No rapprochement. It would be maybe to too strong, but uh, to try to, to have much more balanced uh, relations between uh, Russia and the US. I'd like to move on to the European vision of uh, President Macron, because that was an important topic to distinguish his campaign from that of his challenger in the final route for the presidential ca campaign from the right-wing Front National. And uh, Mr. Macron has uh, outlined a vision of uh, Europe where France can kind of regain or like Europe can regain sovereignty by working together. He talks about a Europe that protects and he talks about strategic autonomy. If you had to explain to an international audience, what does uh, President Macron mean by strategic uh, autonomy and uh, how does he think mm. Europe can achieve that? First of all, I would explain um, by recommending the joint peace we made, you know, in May 2017, uh, you and me, uh, about the relation between France and Germany, because I think that what was said in this uh, in this article can can still be uh, read. What is, what is striking with Emmanuel? Macron is the fact that he was elected as a pro-European. That's a big difference with the other candidates, first. Second, he is seen as pro-European by its uh, European partners, 
But his main problem is first to have uh, a French opinion, which is uh, in fact certainly not anti-European, but certainly not pro-European. And second, uh, it is also to have uh, to find the proper balance, especially with Germany. I mean, all his project is based on the idea that the European project is the only way and it should be saved uh, given the evolution of the uh, strategic context. And it can be done only uh, by a, a new balance, uh, by new initiative taken gently, uh, not only by uh, Paris and Berlin, but uh, for sure nothing would be possible without uh, a narrow entente uh, between uh, Paris uh, and Berlin. So on that, there is in fact two fronts. The very first one is the Eurozone, and to try to go further in terms of convergence, fiscal convergence, these sort of things. And because of also the evolution of the situation in Germany after the elections, the time of the transition, also the fact that the political situation in Germany has changed with the uh, AMP coming from AFD. I mean, the, the Chancellor has not the same uh, political basis uh, she had pre previously. Uh, but the feedbacks on that coming from Germany at the time being are, how to say that, not extremely positive. To say the least. There so very, on, on the Eurozone, we have yeah. very little movement and very yeah. little to show for. But uh, And the second front is European... The, the sec security and, and, and this strategic autonomy. And in, in Germany, for example, there's some who are worried about this term because they hear echoes of Gaullist fantasies of being kind of independent of uh, the Atlantic Alliance. Is it that what, what is meant with strategic autonomy? Or is it uh, much more pragmatic? I think it's much more pragmatic and I think there is a, a difference in terms of perception of the gravity and urgency between Paris and Berlin. That's the main problem we are facing right now. You know, we, we had some uh, different official documents produced by uh, President Macron since, since the election. For instance, a strategic review, also the cyber defense review, these sort of things. And for Paris right now, we are facing a situation in which there is an uncertain uh, US position, an assertive uh, Russian attitude, and an ambitious Chinese one. In addition to that, you have all the uh, domestic troubles within the EU, the evolution of certain uh, EU partners and allies, in terms of going to sort of illiber illiberal uh, democracy, and also the pressure coming from the South in, uh, in terms of migrations, for instance, to say nothing about terrorism. So, in this context for France, there is this idea that uh, there is uh, a need to act jointly and to prepare ourselves to a much more brutal environment. And this sense of urgency is, um, is different, you know, in, in Berlin for, for reasons you know better than me. But it explains a lot, you know. Now, the, the European strategic autonomy it is also to say uh, Europeans should take into consideration their security by themselves. It's not Gaullism, it's much more pragmatism. And it's, I think, something shared by uh, Chancellor Merkel in, uh, in her statement, given you know, the evolution of, uh, namely, uh, in, the, in the US. Uh, so it's not, it's not only the debate about the two percent, it's much more to say there is no alternative to, especially in industrial terms, to better integration between the different components. And on that, I think we are progressing. 
uh, even if it's slow, it's difficult. But I, th I think we, we, we can be reasonably uh, optimistic. I, I would be much more optimistic on this front than on the, Euro, on the Euro, Eurozone one. But there is no idea, you know, in the um, European strategic autonomy to, to have the, the sort of revamping of the Gullist approach. I don't think at all, having been involved in the strategic review, that's, uh, that was not at all the, uh, the idea. The idea was if we don't use this particular momentum to advance in terms of European integration, what could be the uh, ideal context to do so? If, you, if one thinks through strategic autonomy, you could say it involves, on the one hand, the ability to act uh, autonomously politically and then to have the military assets for this, but to also have the kind of technology to act uh, independently. Where do you think uh, we currently have the big, uh, the biggest weaknesses uh, and are we furthest away from the goal of achieving strategic autonomy in Europe? I think uh, the te technological front is um, the most tricky one because um, in terms of, uh, we're in a situation of sort of uh, digital domination, in fact, in Europe. So the uh, GDPR will be, um, will enter into force in, in May, which is to try to protect and to control uh, personal data and it's a reaction to the Snowden affair and I think it's a, it's a positive step even if its um, implementation will be certainly uh, difficult for many companies but it's a step. You have also this idea that there is a need to try uh, to, to engage differently you know the so-called GAFAM. On that I think obviously there is a, a topic which should be addressed in the transatlantic framework but not, not, not only. My point is to say that it's very important also to understand the te technological gap, all the debate about data and consequently about artificial intelligence, also in our relation with, with China. Because if you observe the Obor project, there is a, a dual approach. That's not only, you know, arbors or uh, infrastructures. There is also the uh, ambitions of the big uh, Chinese platform to address the European market. So I think we should, we should broaden our, our perspective because uh, it's not only a transatlantic uh, issue. It's also more and more, I would say, a Eurasian, Eurasian issue. And on that, yes, Europe should react very, very strongly because it's a problem of size. The size of the market is uh, very uh, attractive for the others, but in terms of uh, industrial size of our own uh, digital uh, players, uh, they are too small and unable to compete with the big ones, whatever they are coming from initially the US or whatever they are coming from China. And what, what do you think the most promising approaches uh, within Europe could be in terms of uh, reasserting or regaining uh, technological independence, especially on the on the digital technology front, because some argue that uh, we have a problem because we're, on the one hand we want to be open economies. That means it's very hard to say Chinese players shouldn't be allowed in, or at least we need to have uh, need to have good reasons. But on the other hand, we don't have strong enough domestic players. So in, in an age where kind of many are making protectionist arguments, how do you make a, a balanced argument that is in line with the kind of free economic values that, that the European Union professes to uh, espouse? If we, we publish next, uh, next month uh, a report on uh, data localization, and uh, one of, of the conclusions of this report is to say, sorry, that the EU should have an industrial policy for data and also should consider the data 
as a component of international politics and not only you know in terms of uh, consumers uh, rights or uh, individual uh, be behaviors what does it mean that means that uh, yes we should be open that means that's innovation uh, digital innovation and this idea also very pushed by that you know digitalization sounds with globalization is on the table no doubts but at the same time we should be able to protect ourselves on different segments, which are quite well uh, identified, and maybe also to be more offensive on some other ones. I think we are very defensive, you know, regarding uh, not only the US, but also China or, or Russia. And certainly there is a question for Europe to, to what extent Europe should decide to be also offensive in some uh, particular fields. Last uh, year, you wrote a big paper on how France and Europe should kind of navigate this triangle between the United States, Russia and, and China. And you said that France should be a balancing power. What do you mean by, by that France has traditionally played this role of kind of balancing power in, in this triangle and how can it best perform that role? There are three things. The first one is it's obvious for everyone that the big international issue for the next two decades will be the relationship between uh, China and the US. And the positioning of Russia is important, but in terms of evolution, what is it is clear in this triangle is the fact that uh, when Nixon decided to, to engage uh, China, uh, the small segment was China, and it was down to uh, weak uh, the USSR. Forty uh, seven years after the small segment is for sure Russia and will continue to reduce. But this reduction is in a sense dangerous because given the strategic culture, given the importance of Russia, to be seen as less important on the international scene can uh, provoke some, uh, some, some, some reaction. The second point is the fact that in, term, in geoeconomic terms, uh, given the forces you know, in China, in the US, and partly in, in Russia, especially in the energy field, the transformation, the evolution of this triangle will have some deep consequences uh, on Europe. And for Europe, what is the, the most challenging next relation? It is its relation with, uh, with Russia, given the energy links, but not only, also the security, uh, security ones. Now, for the, the third level, it's, in fact, France after Brexit. You know, or in, in strategic terms, and that's a big difference between France and the UK and France and Germany, France was very balanced by the fact that its security is a continental issue historically and its power pro projection is an overseas issues and i think that's what is expected after the uk and the fact that france will uh, will be the only eu uh, member belonging to the united nations security council it is also to remind to europe that uh, overseas matters and overseas it's not the mediterranean sea it is elsewhere and one of the big issues for the, the next two decades is certainly the evolution of the relation between China and the Quad, between the US, Australia, India uh, and Japan. And I observed that France decided to establish you know, strategic partnership with Australia, with India. There are also some consultation, interaction with Japan, and obviously the relation with, uh, with the US is a, a, at the core of the French foreign policy. So my point is to say maybe the role of, of uh, especially after the UK, and, and the point is also how do, how do we continue to work with the UK because there is no durable European security, in my perspective, without the UK. But maybe the role of France is also to uh, continue to explain to Europeans that the European itself, that's one thing, but that's one thing in something larger. And overseas, 
will matter more and more. Are you optimistic uh, that France will get through with this uh, message, given that Europe is very concerned with its own problems, with uh, problems in the in the in the neighborhood? To then talk about maritime power projection, that the Indian Ocean matters to to Europe, it seems to be a tough time to be coming with this very important message. It is. At the same time, I think that Europe should uh, understand that uh, its place uh, will reduce you know, in the next uh, two decades. The average age, I think, in Europe right now is uh, 40 years old. It's uh, 22 years old in Africa. So we, we have to think gently about a real policy towards you know, African uh, co countries. And also, if you want to, to continue to be a subject of history and not to become an object, yes, we have to project ourselves overseas. Our program, Global Governance Futures, uh, imagines uh, scenarios uh, for the coming 10 years. Uh, Mr. Macron, first of all, only has five years uh, left uh, in, in his term. If you had to describe a more pessimistic scenario, uh, how would a Macron failure look like in foreign policy terms uh, and, and partly in, in domestic terms? And then if you had to describe a more optimistic scenario, what, how would you kind of constitute, you know, what would be a successful scenario for the for Macron's first term. The, the pessimistic one, and I think that the, the test crash will be, you know, the European election in um, in May or June uh, 2019, because if we send, you know, and not only in France, but if the European Parliament uh, will gather only Eurosceptics, I think it, it will be very, very challenging for all of us and not only for France, yeah. obviously. So, so for me, so the most pessimistic scenario will be that, will be a sort of uh, continuing to have this sort of discussion with Germany without any achievements. And I think that achievements are expected given, you know, these coming elections. So that's not only now a question of symbol, uh, we should deliver. And I think that uh, the political cost of not delivering will be very damaging for, for all of us and not only for, for friends, uh, because it can be the end of the European project as it was um, established. Uh, on the bad scenario, uh, I think it will be very negative uh, results for the uh, European uh, election in June 2019, plus some troubles between Paris uh, and Berlin, plus a very complicated Brexit, plus, you know, uh, an unstable Italy, plus Poland continuing in this way and Hungary convincing other countries that illiberal democracy can be, a, can be an option. That's uh, the worst one and it's, it's possible. If we, if we don't do anything, it's possible. The, the optimistic scenario um, will be in fact that Europeans are able to think by themselves, to act by themselves and having a sort of international positioning which is to, to civilize the globalization to continue the globalization, but to explain that uh, it should be regulated, it should be also less unequal, and it should be also made towards, you know, other parts of the world. And I insist on the very important relation which should be built up between um, Europe and Africa. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, we'll take a look at these scenarios already next May. We'll be coming through Paris uh, with our program just ahead of the European election. So that would be one important uh, litmus test. Uh, thank you again for your time, Thomas. Thank you, Dustin.
This episode of Global Futures was presented by Joel Sandu and Torsten Benner and produced by Sonia Sugarbova from the Global Public Policy Institute. Our guest was Thomas Goma. For a full list of Global Governance Futures products, including scenario reports, opinion pieces, interviews, and other podcasts, visit ggfutures.net forward slash analysis. Thank you.